Welcome to the Beer Sec Ops Podcast. Yeah, I said beer. Some had to go to make room for beer, and it wasn't going to be sec, was it? And we need those ops guys, so sorry, Dev. Beer Sec Ops, who will be having conversations with cybersecurity industry influencers and frontline DevOps warriors to help provide us with a cloud-native security blanket. To those who are treading lightly into our hazy DevSecOps world of rainbow shundering unicorns. Hello, hello, and welcome to Beer Sec Ops. I'm your host, Steve Jaguer. On this episode, I have the founders of Cloudsploit. Now, Cloudsploit are now part of the Aqua security family, uh, but I was really curious to get a bit of history into it, uh, deeper dive into the technology, how it's maintained, how it's an open source project, and how kind of all of that operates in a SaaS model. And the founders absolutely delivered. The founders are Matt Fuller and Josh Rosenthal, and they really, really engaged in and told me a lot about not just open source, the technology, cloud security, posture management, but also almost a business philosophy behind open source. It was quite revealing. So here we go. The founders of Cloudsploit, Josh and Matt. Matt and Josh, thank you for being on BeerSecOps podcast. Glad to be here. I don't normally have people on the podcast that I kind of now work with, but your story is very interesting and the sort of technology that you you know a lot about is something that we get asked quite i get asked questions about all the time and i don't really know that much but um, if you don't mind can you maybe starting with matt give me a little bit history of your sort of technical uh life leading up to the beginnings of when when Cloudsploit and now Aqua CPM started, and then I'd like Josh to do the same. Is that cool? Yeah, that sounds great. So I kind of started my career um, working in the security and the web application security space. Um, I worked originally for uh, Mozilla Firefox. I started with them as a way back as an intern, and uh, while I was there, I kind of got a love for uh, open source and working with the security community. And, and really seeing the power of open source in, in the security space. And so um, I worked for them for a while. I was doing uh, web application pen testing, working on a few open source tools, working on their uh, vulnerability management program. And uh, after I graduated uh, from college, I started working at a startup in New York City. And uh, while I was at that startup, I did a lot of work with uh, cloud environments. I was helping to migrate services between uh, Microsoft Azure and uh, Amazon Web Services. And we were also building a number of kind of global, um, large scale platforms on top of these uh, cloud providers. And it was around that time that I realized the difficulties of keeping that space secure. Uh, I kind of took my history with security and tried to apply it to these cloud environments. And while the interfaces were different, really the concepts under the hood were very similar to the old school networking and, and security principles. And uh, what I realized was that every day these cloud services are adding new uh, configurations, new, uh, new environments, new service types, and just keeping track of all of the different engineering efforts that are happening inside of these cloud environments, keeping track of all of your settings, keeping track of what everyone's doing is really, really difficult and all it takes is just a single mistake and suddenly you've kind of compromised your entire environment. 
And uh, over the years that followed, that really became apparent because we were looking at in the industry almost on a weekly basis, there were news reports of some kind of cloud compromise, very high profile uh, companies were getting uh, compromised. And, and I kind of said to myself that you know, there must be a reason that this is happening. And what it really comes down to is the complexity of these environments. And so uh, it has led me to build out this service uh, originally as an open source set of scripts. Uh, I named it CloudSploit um, as kind of a play on cloud and exploit. And um, I, I built this up as an original uh, series of scripts, which we shared with a lot of developers. It got a lot of attention from uh, cloud engineers. It got some attention from AWS itself and uh, really started getting traction within the open source community. And so uh, this continued to expand. And then uh, in 2016, 2017 timeframe, I met uh, Josh, He's kind of taking on the, uh, the business role of things and I'll let him introduce himself. But uh, from there, we really built this out as a, as a SaaS product more so than just, a, uh, just an open source uh, command line product. And uh, from there, it really took off in the, in the space and led us to where we are now within Aqua. So uh, you just you you sent my head spinning with loads of questions I want to ask off the back of that, but that would be rude. I need to let Josh. Josh. <laughs> so greetings, I'm Josh Rosenthal. I'm Matt's co-founder, and I started my career many years ago as a Java programmer in the telecom industry, and there I got to work on a product that we had just invented that was involved in securing the infrastructure that we had. That was a fantastic learning experience, was exposed to ideas and uh, strategies that we still use today. But I also learned that I didn't want to continue as a programmer. Did a few different jobs, including sales engineering, but I really found myself when I got involved in customer success. And with experience in that role, and focusing in the cybersecurity industry. Matt and I just happened upon one another in, uh, on Reddit. So he had posted uh, some questions that he had where, hey, I have this open source project. How do we go and uh, you know, bring this uh, up market and get you know, more paying customers? And it's at that point where we came together first just having uh, simple discussions, presenting ideas, those ideas started to take root and grew the relationship from there, grew the company from there. So Matt, was there already paying customers when you met Josh? Like had you already flipped it from being something op totally open source to something that maybe you thought, maybe I could sell this or I could make an income from it? Yeah, there were a few, um, but really what I had been looking to do was to try to test the waters with sort of a SaaS product, a SaaS version of the, the set of scripts, because as I was working and talking to a lot of people in the industry that were starting to use the scripts, they were saying that it was great to have these, but really the complexity in, in operating them at scale uh, is something that a lot of larger, even medium-sized companies don't really want to deal with. And um, that was around the time where I played around with creating a, a web interface for it. Very simple, um, you know, uh, settings and dashboards and things like that. Um, I think when I met Josh, I had, you know, 10 paying customers maybe. 
and uh, it was a relatively small um, you know, setup. We didn't really have lots of different plan options or anything like that. And uh, what I was really looking for in terms of uh, you know, working with him was to try to take this from something that's just really small into a much larger, uh, you know, fully featured service with something that people are going to be willing to pay a lot more money for. And, uh, and that's kind of the point where it transitioned from just a, a simple um, piece of uh, you know, software into an actual um, product that people could pay for and use. Okay. I want to, I want to bounce the idea of making it a product of, uh, of Josh, but what I'm now, now I don't mean to heckle, but Reddit, seriously, that's how you guys met. Like did you just, and you didn't know each other at all beforehand. You put all your kind of cards on the table on Reddit. Well, and it worked. It well, short answer. Yes. But it's a, it was a <laughs> bit more involved uh, than that. So at, at first it was just a conversation online. Then it became me going and um, entering into a, a consultative uh, role with Matt. And then as the ideas kept going and gaining traction, we started to use a methodology for splitting pr uh, startups called slicing pie. And there's a, an idea invented by a gentleman, Mike Moyer, who has actually written a feature about us and uh, CloudSploit using the slicing pie methodology for startups. And there we came up with a way to split equity and we just kept uh, moving forward. Um, That's cool. That is really good. And I have that link, so I'm going to put that in the show notes. So if anybody's listening to the podcast and you're thinking, what? I want to know more about that. You can go down and click it, which would be good. So Matt, maybe this is a matter of, but either of you feel free to argue over answers now. Um, back when you were, when essentially CloudSplit was a scripted, non-GUI, uh, that I assume was a response to not trying to fall into the any of the traps that you were seeing maybe then or maybe in the industry later through various high-profile uh, uh, breaches, let's call them, uh, for lack of a better term. But was there any kind of a... Um, compelling event that led you to this or did you just have the foresight having seen the complexity yeah i think it was less of a single event and more of an ongoing um situation it was that i was getting heavily interested in learning more and more about uh, cloud environments especially aws at the time i was watching as uh, we go to reinvent uh we would go to different conferences, more local conferences for cloud providers. And they would come up with a list of all of the features and settings and controls and everything else that they had released that year. And it's accelerated even more now that at the time it was, I think they were saying close to one or two new features or changes to an existing feature that were being released every single day. And, um, as I started to try to keep up with all of this, it was almost impossible. I mean, now the cloud providers are involved in all sorts of different services. They've got machine learning and artificial intelligence. Amazon even has a uh, like a satellite management program. So they're, they've got their hands into almost all of the different uh, you know possible configurations of environments that you could imagine. And uh, what, what I was seeing was that each of these had their own settings and security controls. And being kind of a security-minded uh, individual, 
I was always looking at, okay, well, they released new service ABC. How should developers and how should engineers or infrastructure teams keep that new service secure? And oftentimes what you would see is a white paper or some kind of documentation or something like that that the cloud providers would release. And it would say, you know, we recommend turning these different controls on and we recommend turning encryption on here and setting this to that and making sure you don't have wildcards in your control policies. And it was so difficult to do that manually, even in one account, let alone 10 or 50 or hundreds like some enterprises had, that uh, it almost became necessary descriptive. And so what was really nice about the cloud providers is that they're very API driven. Um, you know, they have very REST compatible, friendly, developer friendly, well-documented APIs. And so by hooking into those APIs, you could kind of audit and uh, figure out what was happening uh, in all of the GUIs that the developers were clicking around in. And then you could turn that into some automated scripts that you could present to a security team or used to generate a report from a security perspective. So when you launched this as an open source project, did you have fellow contributors that got on board, the people like yourself that maybe you didn't even know that latched on and were helping out? Yeah, I did. Um, after the project was launched, um, and it was more so just out of organic growth, more so than me trying to actively promote or um, you know solicit development from uh, other engineers. I, I did the initial development, uh, kind of a core set of uh, what I called plugins, which were just security checks for different controls within the cloud myself. And then I pushed those live and I, I think I may have uh, tweeted about it or, or wrote a short blog post about it on my um, personal site and just kind of got some attention from people who were either within AWS and kind of retweeted it or uh, people who were cloud engineers or cloud developers that followed me and, and saw it as a really interesting project. Uh, at the time, there wasn't a lot of competition in the space from an open source perspective. There were a few larger enterprise companies that were doing sort of what eventually would become uh, Gartner termed as a CSPM. But from the open source perspective, I think there may have only been one or two other really small projects. And so it kind of had the appeal of being a developer-friendly, engineering-first project that others could contribute to. And then I started seeing one or two commits here, 10 commits there. Uh, I saw some adoption from large enterprises that were actually using it internally and then were contributing back upstream to the code base. Um, and that's kind of when I realized that all right, this could be something more than just a simple set of scripts. It could be something that people really enjoy using and are, are keen to contribute to and uh, may even pay for if we were to turn it into kind of a professional uh, product. Cool. And obviously, when you met Josh uh, via Reddit and various other discussions, Josh, you saw you obviously saw the potential um, out of the box. And maybe did you did you already have a potential market that you were thinking of? So I definitely saw the potential because we had the ability to leverage the open source that you know, this now open core product to be the low cost, high value provider. And just like Matt said, there were, you know, in the industry at that point, there were very large companies charging a lot of money, but not much for everybody underneath them. So our strategy for going and addressing this market of cloud, of companies that were adopting the cloud was just to go 
and erode that uh, SMB market, that, that small and medium-sized business, and take all of those people who were feeling that they had to pay too much for the available services and give them a, a low-cost option. You know, Matt talks about uh, the number of paying customers we had. Keep in mind, at that time, our paid entry point was $8. So $8 per AWS account. And and the deal that, that Matt had with me, by the way, was that we uh, the only money that we could use was money that we made. So we were somewhere in the, I think at that point, the, the, the $40 a month um, budget. And then I just had to kind of use some kind of strategy and growth hacking to build it up to what we had now. So while focusing on the SMB, that, that was great. And we had hobbyists using us. But then soon enough, we had notable companies. And then that grew. And eventually we started getting enterprise organizations that were leaving those very large companies, those expensive op uh, options, and moving to us. That's very cool. So the that that starting as open source that takes you from script to a SaaS solution, it develops a I guess an underground fan base that can actually be almost like an underground marketing tool within larger organizations because then they, as soon as they start looking for a solution. The developers might say, well, I'm already using this one. Is that the idea? That's exactly it. It's much easier to turn to that decision maker, that CISO, and have the conversation of, we are already in your infrastructure. We are already doing business with you. And this is why you should choose us, right? The people using us have adopted us. The people that are subjected to our solution have already voted in, in essence, to work with us. Uh, it's much easier to get an expansion that way than coming from the top down and saying, choose us and subject everybody to this, whether they like it or not. <laughs> There's room for both, right? It depends on the, on the product and the strategy, but this was ours, was to go bottom up. And I'll add to what Josh said there, that the strategy that we built on too was one of openness and, and of sharing with uh, our, our potential customers and in attempt to instill confidence in our tool for them to use internally. And that was one of the huge advantages of being open source as well, which is not just that you know, the developers could start using it, uh, that they could start playing with it internally, but also that even after they were to adapt a fully hosted you know, SaaS version of the product, they could still go back and audit the original code base for what it was we were doing inside of their accounts. And that really helped, uh, you know, especially for a smaller company, one that not a lot of people had heard of that we were just starting out. We were able to say to them, fine, you don't trust us. That's okay. You can still look at the open source. You can see everything that it's doing. You can see our contributions from other developers. You can even kind of put names to faces and, and try to see what other companies are using us. You can contribute yourself. Uh, you can audit everything. So it was really a, a great um, sales and marketing tool in addition to a uh, an engineering tool as well. What were the 
difficulties in going from what you had as a scripted solution to a SaaS solution because now it's not just a case of you're writing things that are checking for other people's security vulnerabilities. You might be creating something that has security vulnerabilities because you are people are now depending on you to host information about them. So was there a learning curve involved in making that happen? There was a little bit, but there were a few things that we did to try to uh, avoid that and, and to mitigate any potential issues. Um, first, I had already had a, a good amount of experience building cloud-centric and cloud-native applications. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind. I, was, I had a very um, kind of extensive project history of building things on top of AWS. And so I was, and that's where we built our original SaaS solution. And so I kind of used that to leverage us into a place where I was building in a place where we were comfortable with and that we could, you know, we even used our own service to audit ourselves. Uh, so we're kind of dogfooding the, the product along the way. Um, but the other thing was that we really tried to enforce minimalism across the development board. Uh, we leveraged a lot of AWS's managed services, tons of serverless solutions, which was really becoming a, a popular uh, kind of um not really a buzzword, but a popular service uh, entry point at that time. Uh, Lambda had just started to, to gain popularity, API Gateway uh, on top of AWS. And so we really tried to leverage all of these existing solutions to reduce our own surface area and allow us to focus exclusively on the development of the product without having to worry about things like securing SSH servers and building new jump boxes and, uh, and, and trying to secure our own databases from public access. And uh, by doing that, we not only were able to uh, to really build out the security of the product, but we were also able to save a lot of costs. Um, we, we I think the original infrastructure bill for the first several years was less than $100 per month, even more than that, less than $50 per month. And we were able to really build on top of that and leverage those solutions from the cloud providers. Uh, and at the same time, learning how we can continue to secure our customers' accounts as they begin to use those products as well. Yeah. yeah. So Matt touched on one of the strong points about how we still do business, which is this principle of least privilege. And so we only ask for the information or the access that we need. Now, on the access side, we use that security audit role. So therefore, we can look at configurations of the infrastructure, not the content in the infrastructure. That's one level. But on the business side, we do much of the same thing. We're only asking for a way to uniquely identify each of our users. We have only their email address. Now, we go and tie that into a, a CRM where we might go and uh, add more to uh, the profile of the user if they are strategic for some reason. For example, they're from an enterprise and they're one of the people that we need to interact with on the business side. But overall, we try to keep and retain the least amount of information that we had, right? That was how we did business as CloudSploit. And it was interesting to try to market with only that information because marketing companies would come to us just like every other startup and say, we can do so much for you. All right, well, with this information, how much can you do? Uh, we can't really do so much for you. So, <laughs> so we had to come up with, uh, with different ways to go and get noticed. And luckily we had 
our open source community that Matt had started. And by going and getting the participation there, by building our community, by getting notable people uh, to at least try us to go and make mention of us, we were able to go and get inbound customers rather than necessarily having to reach out. New, the latest and greatest technologies always seem to be founded and, and, and their, their genesis is always, seems to be these days in open source, which is, um, which is awesome. So what I'm, what I'm wondering now, if I flip more to the, the present and your, a lot of your original scripts came from your own experiences in trying to ensure that things were configured securely and they are getting out of hand. I mean, I guess my reference for AWS would be how many different certifications can they possibly have? Uh, can anyone have them all? It seems like nearly impossible. But how do you how do you stay current? So how how are you keeping up with the new plugins? I believe is what the, the terminology now instead of open source script, it's now a plugin. How do you know? How often do you come up with new plugins? And how do you keep abreast of all the new security misconfigurations that are possible? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, it's definitely grown a lot since we first started. Uh, originally, the very beginning, it was just you know, me in my living room doing some research. Right? But now it's, uh, it's a, a lot more of an extensive process. Um, the team itself has grown, uh, of course. Uh, we also leverage a lot of different resources. Um, we leverage documentation from the cloud providers themselves. They're uh, especially keen on security principles now. Um, in fact, some of the cloud providers, I know AWS, for example, has their own conference that's sort of a, a spinoff of reInvent that's its own security conference called Reinforce, which they do every year. And um, so they've really built up kind of their profile of, uh, of what they're investing in security. And along with that, they've released all sorts of uh, documentation and white papers and knowledge base articles and things that we can leverage to see what the best practices are in the community. Um, we also leverage um, tools like a CIS Benchmarks, which is a fantastic sort of community-driven um, uh, set of policies that you should implement in these different cloud providers. So they have benchmarks for AWS, Azure, GCP. And so as part of our current SaaS product, we offer mappings between what CIS is saying should be the, um, the security controls and what we are offering as part of the platform. And we also leverage um, research that different teams, uh, red teams in, um, uh, in the industry, security pen testing firms, they tend to publish their research. And so a combination of all of these things, which we try to stay as current as possible on, make up the, the bulk of our contributions. However, I'll also add that even though we're, we're now kind of a, you know, a, a much more um, inclusive and larger startup as part of Aqua, we're still true to our open source roots. We still have the open source product and we still see contributions from the community in the open source product. And there's a, a really great example of that that I like to give, which is uh, several weeks ago, I think it's a few months ago now, AWS announced a new feature within their uh, EC2 service as a new security control. And uh, I was reading about it, uh, I think on Twitter, and um, I finished reading about it. I was like, oh, this would be a great security control to have. I went over to the open source edition to kind of fork and and, uh, and add it myself. And I noticed that there was a new pull request and somebody had already added this new change in the open source edition, which we were able to audit, pull back into the code and then roll out as part of the product. And within 
I think it was it was 45 minutes of AWS announcing this feature, we were able to add support because of the power of having the open source community leverage and use uh, our tooling in combination with the cloud provider APIs that they're so flexible. Uh, we were able to bring that into the product and, and just enhance it for both our open source users as well as for our paying customers. We love that even some of our larger enterprise customers and our paying customers are also contributors to the open source. So it's really a, a self um, feeding cycle in a way that, uh, you know, it's, it's not an exclusively open source product. It's not an exclusively SaaS product. They're really very tightly integrated and they benefit from each other. Uh, if somebody, one of our paying customers says, Hey, can you add this plugin? We pull that plugin back and we push it out as part of the open source edition as well. So even if you're not paying us and you're not using our platform, you're still getting the value of the uh, contributions and the recommendations and the feature requests from our paying customers who are. To add to what Matt just said and talking about the community and how it works together, well, we do have the free license, right? There is a free option to the service and anyone can come in, go and add, you know, go and create an account, go and audit their infrastructure using what's available in our uh, you know, in our open source uh, set of plugins and that way we feel that we're also giving back to our community even for the hobbyist that might not want to purchase a subscription excellent so i was going to get to how do they, how do we get started with uh, this sort of thing uh, both on the cheap and as an enterprise but i'll let you finish with that because that was a cool start and i did i did that before i even met you guys and uh, yeah, my personal AWS account was a was a total shiitake mushroom show. So, so. it was a, it's already been useful to me. But there's two, three more things I'd like to touch on before we sort of close out. And uh, I realize we're going to get to the top of the hour soon. The first one is you touched on GDPR and or and CIA. I, I think I touched on GDPR, but compliance. Let me just get to the overall word. Compliance is. Well, since GDPR in the UK, at the very least, compliance has been on everybody's minds. Now, there's all sorts of global standards around that. And I've noticed that this is the kind of thing that can help people who are, let's say, legal and compliance minded uh, get some get, get a get a, a step up. Yeah, compliance is uh, definitely a key part of uh, using the cloud and uh, especially key for enterprises. It's one that there is a, an overlap with security, but it's not always um, the same thing. Sometimes uh, compliance can be a bit of checkboxes, whereas security tends to err more on the side of actually implementing controls that are going to protect the, the data, uh, protect the confidential information. Um, but there is an overlap, and we do try to focus on the more popular compliance programs. Um, we do have support for PCI, for HIPAA, uh, for GDPR. And what's also relevant too to this conversation is that for compliance, it's not always just controls that can be automated and technical controls that we can actually check, but compliance tends to consist of a combination of those technical controls as well as controls that have to be implemented as part of process or part of um, you know staff training or part of just the nature of having a company. Uh, for example, there's some compliance programs that require you to have a security officer 
meaning somebody who's going to get your email and then respond to security incidents and have a defined SLA for different uh, security events that may occur inside of your organization. And for things like that, there really is no way to audit that uh, from a technical perspective. That's the kind of thing that you still have to have someone go and say, okay, do you have a compliance officer? Yes, where is their information? How can I access it on your website? And so for what we can automate, uh, within the compliance programs we have, and in many of the programs it, it consists of a large majority, 90% or more of the controls, and then we present them to our users both in the open source edition as well as in the uh, in the SaaS platform, the hosted edition. And we kind of relate the security controls that we've developed into the context of, of the security controls that the compliance program mandates. Yeah, it's, I want to take a, a slightly different view on compliance. Adding the business perspective from what Matt just talked about on the technical side. And that is when Matt and I started, we had several different plans. I mentioned that we had the $8 a month per AWS account plan. We also had one at $110. And there was a time, in fact, many months where the majority of our income came out of the doc region and then other countries that were inside of the GDPR umbrella. And that was interesting to us because we did not do any, well, first we didn't do any geographically targeted advertising, but we definitely only had things in English and uh, were you know, generally dealing with things that just by our location were inside of the United States. But yet, co the companies inside of these countries were coming and adopting and, uh, us using our licenses at that higher rate. And that, by the way, was part of what caused this inflection of going from earning um, less than $100 a month to, mm, let's just call it more than $100 a month. Funny you're asking me when uh, when you should expand on terms and when not. You're worried about technical audience, and actually the only term so far I thought I'd expand on was "doc" stands for Germany or Ger in English Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. So uh, people who aren't in sales might not know that expression. So I thought I'll throw that one out there. Um, so last two points before we get if we have time, um, Matt, you just you just published a blog article about SaltStack. And I wonder if you could just do a, like a the 60 second summary of what that was, that particular one was about. Sure. So the root of the, um, the, the blog post and the root of the issue that occurred a few days ago, I guess a few weeks ago now, is that the, um, the, the, the DevOps program uh, called SaltStack, which is uh, used by a lot of uh, teams to do remote server management, it had a vulnerability that uh, if someone were to access the, uh, the salt leader node uh, from a public location, they could potentially compromise that leader node and force the um, essentially the salt minions to, uh, to go and run uh, untrusted code in the environment. Um, we're not a, a, a platform that really digs into application level vulnerabilities, but that was an interesting one because it highlights one of the common uh, situations that developers that are working in the cloud really start to see, which is that regardless of the vulnerabilities that exist inside of the software, if the software is also exposed to the internet, 
um, or exposed through some series of configurations in the cloud that allow a remote developer to access and exploit it, then you've taken what's essentially a low or medium risk vulnerability that could potentially never be exploited internally, and you've changed it into a high priority um, is getting actively exploited, needs to be fixed immediately kind of vulnerability. And that's where we really see the power of uh, this CSPM platform, um, what the Cloudsploit platform has evolved into, is that we're helping to detect these kinds of risk inside of cloud platforms that may place the rest of your infrastructure at risk. And we can do it in a very um, seamless, very continuously updating kind of way. So when this vulnerability was announced in SaltStack, it was due to, like I said, the, uh, the Salt Leader node being exposed, but we were able to detect when that specific port that was used by Salt Leader node is being exposed outside of your organization. And by auditing all of your different cloud controls, security groups and you know, network security groups in Azure and, and all of these other places, we were able to see, did your organization have unprotected salt leader nodes that may be exposed to the internet that are also vulnerable to this vulnerability that may be placing your entire infrastructure at risk. And then we could go and give you alerts on that. And so as soon as we saw this uh, issue come out, we developed a plugin for it. We pushed it out as part of the platform. And then um, we even had a few customers, uh, you know, open tickets with us and say, you know, hey, what is this? I saw it this morning. And we were able to provide information to them and say, you know, there was a new vulnerability in software that you might be running. Um, we proactively audited your account and we found that you may be at risk. You should really go and patch these servers. More importantly, you should probably remove them from being publicly exposed, um, at least until you get a, a patch in place. Um, so it really just enhances the, or really demonstrates the power of this uh, this platform because those developers didn't have to do anything to get that uh, uh, that kind of uh, result in their in their scripts. I'm going to put that blog link into the show notes as well. So if you're listening, you can click through and read Matt's uh, article. Uh, sorry, Josh, were you going to comment on that too? What I wanted to to add to that was that while we generally have a um, a deployment strategy for new plugins. That is, we warn all of our customers, hey, we're getting ready to go and release some new plugins. You're going to go and see alerts. Sometimes things need to be fast-tracked. Now, this is one of the values that we add to users of our product, which is that we're in the business of taking on the effort of staying aware of coming dangers, prioritizing these risks. And in the case of SaltStack, rather than going and warning them, hey, we're about to go and release uh, some new plugins and you're going to see a, a, a rise in warnings. This one was high priority enough that we sent out a message. We're going to go and make this change. And we went ahead and made it. All right. I'm going to wrap up because we're getting near the top of the hour. So one thing I'd like to point out is that you just mentioned the term CSPM. We didn't really flesh that out. It stands for Cloud Security Posture Management. And what's interesting is that it's new enough that if you're not keeping your finger on the security pulse, that if you search for just straight up CSPM, it comes in below the Center for Spine and Pain Medicine, the Colorado Springs Pioneer Museum. You're giving uh, some, some free advertising there. Yeah, I am. I'm helping these guys out. But it's it is it is new, right? And I would imagine if you guys if you guys were starting CloudSplit and you were working your way up toward 
creating a platform when Gartner suddenly came out and said, by the way, this is now called CSPM. That must have been, if it was me, that would be a little bit of a champagne moment to go, this is recognized. It's a thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting because we were operating in a space. And to be fair, all of the major players were operating in a space where the term was not really defined yet. Um, but over the course of, I would have to go back and research when the, the term CSPM was actually coined by Gartner. But I, I would imagine that if you look back 2017, 2018, it really wasn't a popular term. It wasn't something that was being used that often. It was more just cloud security. You know, how can I protect the security in my cloud? How can I do compliance in the cloud? And then um, partially from a marketing uh, standpoint and partially from a, you know, wanting to build kind of a, uh, a completely uh, independent sort of uh, um, location where we could talk about all of these different companies, I think Gartner then moved into defining what this space actually is. Um, but I think that's very fairly popular with all of the other um, terms that they've coined as well. You, first, you have to have a, a movement behind it. You have to get traction. You have to get companies that are operating in it. And then eventually the, 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 the space becomes either crowded or it becomes um, well-known enough that then it's uh, it's okay to, to coin it with a term. And so I think that's where we are now. Uh, from a early days of uh, you know marketing and things like that, we didn't really latch on to the term CSPM. Uh, I think now we are uh, within Aqua and as part of the broader strategy, just simply because most um, enterprises, most small business, medium businesses, they're at least aware of the term at this point. And that's partially thanks to the advertisement and the, you know, the, the um, I guess, platform defining strategy that Gartner has. Okay. So Matt and Josh, thank you very much for being on BeerSec Ops. This has been super educational for me from a technology open source and even from like a business philosophy standpoint. So I hope the listeners find it just as enlightening as I did. Hey, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. It was really fascinating to listen to Matt and Josh talk about CSPM, both the history and sort of business element of how they brought CloudSploit up from kind of just a, a series of scripts into a fully functioning SaaS solution. And if you want to find out more about that, well, of course, you can go to GitHub and look at the CloudSploit repo there. But if you want to just kind of try it out, you can now go to cloud.aquasec.com. It's now called AquaWave, and you can just log in, create an account, and have a play for yourselves and see how far it's come since. 